listening skills, listening to different perspectives, ability to adapt. So being open to the idea of change, being willing to pivot and not that my way is necessarily the right way. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd, and I'm a four-time author, including the book Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager at Stamply. Joining me today is Deepak Doger, the CFO at Gabs Technologies. Deepak, welcome. Thank you, Ken. Happy to be here to share my experiences and bring my learnings to you. Well, we really appreciate it, in particular, as our audience will find out because of your extensive, really extensive global experience. So if you could just start by telling us a little bit about what you do in your background. Certainly. I'm currently the CFO and board member at GS Lab Gas Technologies. By education and academic background, I'm a chartered accountant, equivalent to the CPA in the US, and have worked with Deloitte. Uh, JCB, which is a British construction equipment firm, as well as spending most of my career with uh, the General Electric Group. Mm-hmm. During these 10 years, I had the opportunity to live and work in India, China, US, and Europe, and worked in multiple industries and services from high technology to manufacturing to consumer. And these diverse experiences gave huge learning opportunities to me. So pleasure to be here. Well, that's fantastic. We really appreciate you being here. If we could start off with maybe giving our audience some idea of what your team structure is, number of people, and how how your sort of your org chart works from accounting and finance. Certainly. So if I were to look at my responsibilities currently, I look after all of finance and accounting, investor relations, as well as legal and compliance. We have a very diversified and talented team which has been instrumental in partnering with business and leadership teams to deliver a compounded annual growth rate of almost 30% over the last three years. And we continue to look at growing on a steep growth path as the teams continue to evolve. That's an amazing growth rate. So does your general counsel report through you? Uh, Yes, please. That's interesting. Okay. So another great question that we always ask is, what and this is useful to a lot of people in the audience, what numbers do you report to the board? Do you have a set package that you report? Are there things in that package that you think are important or unique to your organization? No, great question. A board relationship is very, very collaborative in nature. Not only do is it, is it like a reporting kind of thing. Now, I, I feel it's very two-way kind of engagement. And the board really plays a key role in strategy development, as well as business growth. And we've really seen the impact of that as we've grown our business. And our board engages with us, not only in formal board meetings, but also outside of those. 
be it in developing clients, be it in sometimes, you know, people engagement and so many more ways. So it's more than just uh, a financial reporting kind of a relationship with the board where, you know, okay, what's the bottom line number or what's the uh, mm-hmm. revenue growth coming in? So it's, it's much beyond that. And, uh, and I think that really is unique. So it's not uh, about uniqueness of a particular number, but just the relationship and how the board engages and, uh, and gives us a huge amount of firepower. Interesting. Okay. And another question is about what's your tech stack and specifically are there, do you have one specific ERP or multiple ERPs? And also, is there a piece of software that you use that may be somewhat unique to your industry? It's a very good question. You know, we are a technology company. So if I were to think there are, you know, I look at tech stack in multiple ways. Given that we are a technology services company, we actually have the opportunity to operate in multiple tech stacks as well as cloud and on-prem services, including artificial intelligence-led operations. And and I'm talking here about from a customer focus. And we focus on the verticals of healthcare, banking and financial services. So these are the areas that we really focus on. If you were to ask internally, we have, we are right now operating as one company, but we are in very advanced stages of having a merger with another company and it's under regulatory approvals. So so we will have multiple platforms. Interestingly, some of these are in-house developed given that we are a technology services company where we're able to leverage the power that we bring and we are able to customize that. So we've got multiple technologies out there. Okay, and is the company based in the US so you're using GAAP reporting? We are using multiple financial reporting. We're operating out of 10 countries. We operate in the US for sure. Also UK, Middle East, India, Singapore. So so multiple countries. And in the Middle East itself, we operate out of multiple countries, Saudi, Oman, Qatar, UAE, etc. And in terms of accounting, we are using AFRS as mm-hmm. our global reporting. Though for you know each of the individual countries, we may have, you know, local gap. So for our North America entities, we will use US gap. For UK, we'll use UK. Uh, similarly, so so there's a statutory basis and there's a global basis. But globally, we are using IFRS. Do you find? And this is an extra question I thought of. Do you find that the difference between gap and IFRS that those differences are getting fewer and fewer? I know there's an attempt to combine the two, if you will. Do you see that happening or is that not happening? Over the last 25 years, I think there's been a lot of effort, both by the International Accounting Standards team as well as the UK GAAP team. And the conceptual differences, so so there was a foundational difference between the two accounting. And I think that has come together a lot more. Still, I would say there are significant differences. US GAAP continues to be prescriptive in certain areas and IFRS continues to lean towards a lot more towards judgment, judgment of management. And that has always been the basis between the two, the differences. uh, It's always been there. They've come closer, but still long way to go in my view. And there are challenges. I don't think there's any easy answer one way or the other Mm -hmm. in the, in, in us gap, the prescriptiveness is what led to the issues, I'm going back two decades now, when of course the whole journey started, the challenges that happened with Enron and some of the other companies around that time, 
was primarily because it was absolutely prescriptive and you could follow everything and make it look something different than what it was because you could play around the rules. Now, IFRS says it's management, it's your judgment. But that judgment from one organization to another organization and from one management team to another management team within the same organization can be so different. Mm -hmm. and, and then how do you take a call on that? And how do you make financials really comparable from one to the other? Yes. And uh, the whole headset behind IFRS has been, and I've been involved in, in some of these pieces intrinsically, but, but the headset behind it has been that you want to give more and more information to not just the shareholders, but other parts of the public, which are equally important, like lenders, bankers, regulators, etc. I think that's been the intent, but somewhere I think there's been a gap and it's fallen through because how much of the assets and the liabilities in the balance sheet really are true in value in, in what they reflected versus versus applying different discounting rates or other means. And hence, when I did my accounting many, many decades ago, there was this whole headset about being conservative. Right. And somewhere in, in the IFRS piece, I feel that conservativeness concept has gone out the door. Now that can be abused too. Of course, right. you can hold the management accountable, but, but that is one of the debates that's happening big time, especially in the UK these days, you know, between how do you hold auditors accountable and you know whether the big four you know some of the challenges there's gray areas you know in a lot of these things and how you take take calls on some of the positions and and there may not be any right or wrong answer in different situations x may be right in another situation x may be wrong so so it becomes very very tricky i think the the job of auditors as well as controllers and accountants in public companies, large public companies, which are operating in different regulatory requirements, I think is, is becoming more and more challenging. And to be able to balance all of that and make sure that we are compliant and able to deliver good quality financial reporting for its users is going to continue to become more and more challenging. Well, that's a great answer. Sorry, sorry for being long winded. No, not at all. That was really useful. I remember. I were you in when you worked at Deloitte. What area of the company did you work in? So I did my articles over there. You know, the the initial internship training uh -huh. period. I joined them for a brief period, but I was involved. But I I did multiple pieces. I was in audit. I was in taxation. I did a little bit of business advisory. Oh, nice. Uh, a little okay. bit in uh, valuations and due diligence. So I did a little bit here and there. So, which, which really helped sort of round, get a rounded, full rounded experience. Well, I wish I had that experience because when you mentioned the judgment and auditors, I was at KPMG for three years, just in audit. And it's amazing how over the years, more and more exposure to businesses thinking more about that judgment issue. And it's, it's always going to be, a I think it's always going to be a difficult issue. What are some of the... And, you know, we talked about at the beginning, globe, your global experience. And this is a broad question that you can go and take any direction you want. What are some of the challenges inherent to a global organization? And what skills have best aided you when leading a cross-cultural team? You know, global organizations bring together people from multiple cultures who have grown up and operate in diverse ecosystems. There are unique aspects from one region to another and one country to another. I mean, even within countries, even within the US, 
even within large countries like China, there are multiple factors, multiple cultures, multiple ways of thinking. There's not necessarily one right or wrong, but it's just different. And it becomes very, very important, I feel, to tailor and customize for the uniqueness of the various regions. What it really means is the same sentence, the same conversation can have different results from with people from different cultures. When I was controller of Asia Pacific, I was working with people from Korea, Australia, Philippines, almost every country in Asia Pacific. And the pace at which each one works and the way their mind is structured, their education system, how they have grown up, the environment they operate in is completely unique. So you have to switch approach in different ways. My own background has been diverse and I was exposed to a lot of diversity. So the plurality of heart was always there. But how do you do it in a sensitive manner? Or even if you're not sensitive, at least how do you do it respectfully, not being insensitive? I think, I think some of these become core. I'd further add that achieving a certain goal with different cultures or countries is a multifaceted task. And having to bring them all together definitely has its nuances. Through different friends and engagements, I have learned and understand a broader ecosystem and how people have progressed and how you can not measure or look at everybody with the same lens. Mm -hmm. You asked about, you know, what helped me? Definitely, you know, as I shared some of the exposure in the initial stages, but beyond that, listening skills, listening to different perspectives, ability to adapt. So, being open to the idea of change, being willing to pivot and not that my way is necessarily the right way. There can be multiple right ways and what may be right in one country or one region or one culture may not necessarily be the right way in another one. So how do you be effective? And it's not just about working with people. It's about being successful because if you're in business, how are you going to make your business successful in those economies, those markets, those regions? You have to become part of that culture. You have to appreciate it and, and then succeed in it. Yeah, that's, I, I can't imagine how challenging that would be. Sort of connected to that, what key learnings or experiences from your career prepared you for this role as a financial leader? You know, growing up in a family, where we had business guests from every continent year round, gave early appreciation of diverse cultures and an excitement to learn about different cultures. This was further cemented with doing international jobs based out of China, US, Europe, where one was required to drive similar processes, similar outcomes across multiple geographies. So I, th I think that was, the you know, the sort of foundational part of it. And then the opportunity of being able to do different roles. I started early with uh, General Electric, spent about over 18 years in overall General Electric group in different companies. And, and that gave an exposure across different roles and different industries, be it as a business head, as CFO, regional CFO, company CFO, FP&A, controllership, M&A, merchants and acquisitions, uh, integrations of uh, acquisitions, 
in different industries, be, be it healthcare, be it industrial, consumer, be it services. So, so I think that is some of the some of these exposures being put in some tough spots and and learning through that, making mistakes, making mistakes, and being allowed to make mistakes to learn from it, and and be able to then deliver even better. I think that was another important one. And I want to sort of also give due acknowledgement to the fact that my managers and my leaders gave me that space to, to do some of my stuff, where, which, I, which allowed me to experiment and drive a few things. So I think all of that put together really helped shape some of the pieces. That's fascinating. What do you think of all those positions as you moved along? What transition do you think was the most difficult from, from getting from one to the next job? What transition was most difficult? I, I don't think I found any particular transition more difficult than the other. I think every transition was very dif- difficult. And uh, the reason I say that is because I was almost taking up a different role every two years. Okay. And, uh, and every role was very different. It was, I can't recall ever repeating a similar job in a different role. So, and many times I was changing as many as three different factors. So as an example, when I moved from Shanghai, China to the US, I moved my business. I was with the consumer and industrial GE, and I moved to the energy business of GE, which I had never worked in. I moved from a China or an Asia operating culture to a US operating culture. I never worked in the US before that. And I moved from a controllership job to an entirely opposite job in the finance field, which is financial planning and analysis. And I had never done financial planning and analysis. And that too for a, almost a $2.5 billion business with the operating, over 100, operating in over 100 countries, very diversified, very global business. So it was as complex as that versus you know, simpler combinations of, of moving different regions or different businesses along with the role change. So I, I want to say every change, was, every transition was difficult, uh-huh. but, but I think that is why the learnings were immense. Right. And, and that is where, you know, the steep learning, love, uh, steep learning curve really helped in the, in the career enhancement. Yes. Okay. Is it your opinion that does GE make those rapid promotions intentionally so that you get a, a broader experience? Is that part of their philosophy? I, I won't say that there are quicker promotions as a philosophy. Okay. I think you will find a mix of people. And, and I think it's not about GE. I think you'll find a mix of this in almost every, every good, uh, strong cultured organization where there will be certain people who, who grow at a much faster pace and there are many others whose growth is perhaps a, a little bit more paced, but that many times is a function of the particular individual. It's a, sometimes a function of timing and the opportunity you get. Right. Uh, and it's also a function of choices. So I could have chosen, I, I was in a very nice, sweet job as the youngest CFO of G India in a joint venture where I was the CFO running the whole operation myself, had my, my own sort of mini fiefdom. 
and it was a non-consolidated joint venture. So I didn't even have the big brother GE looking onto me all the time. So I had that mini independence yet. And I could have stayed there for the next 10, 15, 20 years easily. But if I would have done that, then I would not, I would not have grown the way I would have grown. So, so I made, I made the choice of coming out of my comfort zone and moving to Shanghai, where I did not even lo- know the local language, take care of Asia Pacific into a controller job, moving from a CFO job to a controller job, which was you know, trying to get some functional depth because I was thinking about the next 10, 20, 30 years and not only about the current sweet job that I had. So I think it's, it's multiple and I think it's a fact, it's a, it's a reality in every organization. Every, every large, good quality, well-cultured organization, well-cultured means in terms of management. And if you're ready to go out of your comfort zone, if you're, if you're willing to go push the envelope and, and you're delivering and you're doing it in the right way, including some of the softer sides of it, then it is for the organization not to, if, if the organization does not promote you and give you the challenging roles, then it's the organization's loss. And I think there'll be very few organizations or leaders who will give up that opportunity. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, it's that comfort zone is such a big thing. When bringing multiple teams together through acquisitions, how do you retain top talent and instill value, which particularly given the job market that we have and the great resignation and COVID, I'm sure has become more complex possibly. Yep, yep. You know, absolutely. Acquisitions can be very tricky, very tricky. You know, it's all nice and hunky-dory when, when, you know, you're doing an acquisition. Uh, I don't mean to discount it. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen for the meeting of the minds between two organizations to come together, be it a merger or be it an acquisition. So the success rate of m and is good, but the success rate of integration after a merger or an acquisition is completed has been rather dismissal, dismal, I would like to say. Many times what happens is that merger and acquisition decisions are driven by either technology, intellectual property, supply chain advantages, distributions or other strategic reasons. Mm -hmm. However, to your point, we must appreciate that to make any of these successful, it is the people behind these who create the value. Mm -hmm. And, And we must recognize that and integrate. The integration of the people is the most important and also perhaps the most challenging. When two or more organizations come together, they come together, coming, people come together from two different cultures and environments. And according to them, most of what they were doing were right. And a few things may require perfection. And when they see something else, then there's a, there's a certain, you know, there's an inherent need. No, no, my thing is right. If they, especially there's a conflictive kind of thing, not, not conflictive management, but there's a conflict in a process or there's a conflict in a way you want to go to the market or a conflict in a way you want to produce something or deliver to the customer or how you even look at the customer. Then there's a, a sense of sort of going back 
to you know what you are used to and and watch what has helped you succeed and to get an appreciation of the other side is is not that easy and it's very important i feel to to be able to recognize that appreciate that and see that the other if if there's a merger or an acquisition the other team has also succeeded somewhere and that is why right that alliance took place in the first place right we must recognize that and build on that and not lose that because if you lose on that that is where the value of the acquisition then stops you know or or you know you you miss out on that opportunity yes we've had that was such a great comment we've had several cfos in fact the last two i've talked to in the podcast who are all heavily involved in acquisitions who said this the exact same things that you're saying that it's it's such a people sensitive thing to do an acquisition really that that's such a great point and we're hearing that from more and more of our guests glancing at my notes i want to say i want to just check and see if i've covered everything they want to cover what we usually do at the end of our podcast is to ask the question if you had one piece of advice for modern finance leaders what would it be and you can take that in any direction you want i would say as finance leaders you are in the best position to provide insights on the business mm-hmm. and help drive strategy and drive execution nobody in the organization is better positioned than the finance person because i look at finance as the language of business mm-hmm. and i'd like to add time permitting sure uh, to what i call as pitched as one word as a mantra sort of i won't explain it but pitched as spelled wrongly p i with a double t and double c h e d p and this is an acronym p standing for peer to peer relationships it's important to develop that and it can be a big big differentiator in an organization and how effective you are i influence not power use your influence not your power finance will have a lot of power in an organization but drive influence instead of power t take risk without risk if you play so- play safe you will have limited success we spoke a lot about talent talent and people the most important ingredient for success c collaboration you got to collaborate the value you can get out of collaboration is absolutely amazing and it goes on to the next c of conflict management so collaboration versus conflict and how do you manage conflict organizations and functions are designed for conflict how do we work together to be able to either through peer to peer relationships or through collaboration to bring it together so that that is a, a constructive conflict for the for the good of the organization h for hunger you got to have hunger if you don't have hunger if you don't have ambition then we'll be in our comfort zones so we need we need that fire in the belly and i'd say e we got to earn respect and trust it it doesn't come we got to earn it and the last d is the most important we got to drive we as finance people have to drive the business and deliver the goods for all of our stakeholders be it our shareholders be it our uh, be, be it the regulators 
be it our management, be it our teams, it all comes together for us. So once again, P-I-T-C-C-H-E-D, pitched. That's great. That may be the best, most comprehensive piece of advice we've gotten on the podcast. Well, Deepak, I want to thank you so much for being here. The, the value that you added was fantastic. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.